For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. I recorded this episode last time I was in London with my dear friend Sarah Ali. She's a luxury fashion consultant who focuses on Arabia and Africa and started out at Harvey Nichols. She now runs a business called MEA Luxury, advising brands and retailers on emerging markets, but also on inclusion and this whole idea of conscious luxury. Now, Sarah doesn't do a lot of interviews, but I talked her into sharing her thoughts with us because I think we can all gain from this conversation about colonialism in fashion. And I hope that it might help us build some cultural bridges and to do better when it comes to calling out and understanding injustice and unconscious bias and racism. And I do think this is a good moment to ask some harder questions and try and look at this stuff with a bit more nuance now that fashion seems finally to be at a point where inclusivity is going mainstream. We talk about how tender all this can be. And that's Sarah's word for it. She told me, I don't want to be cast as the angry black woman. I stand for sharing and a growth mindset. But she also said Africa shouldn't be trending to tick boxes or gain traction for brands. So we talk about the need to listen with open hearts, as well as to check ourselves and to do better. And you know what? Fashion needs to do better. The cultural appropriation examples have been stacking up. Go on, think of the most recent examples. Sarah and I discussed Dior, but we could just as well have been talking about Carolina Herrera. You know, when Wes Gordon's first collection for the brand, he was inspired in inverted commas by Mexico and then accused of plagiarising indigenous designs without giving credit. And he even inspired the Mexican Minister for Culture, Alejandro Frausto, to write a letter to the brand calling them out. Then there was Kim Kardashian naming her shapewear brand, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Kimono. (laughs) She, in fairness, has since reneged. I'm not even going to get into the whole Gucci and Prada blackface scandals. And we've all heard the one about Dolce & Gabbana in China. But the blunders, they just keep coming. Only recently in August, Versace issued a T-shirt that listed all their stores on the back. And it was like Milan, Italy. Rome, Italy, New York, USA, and then Beijing, China. And then it said, Hong Kong, Hong Kong. (laughs) They did the same with Macau, which came across as disavowing China's sovereignty, right? Or it just showed that someone in the office couldn't be asked to figure out what was going on on the other side of the world. Hang on, sit with that for a moment. That familiar phrase, the other side of the world. The other side of where? Who gets to decide what is other? 
Mm, makes you think, huh? If you want to deep dive on all of this, you might like to go back to episode 33 with the wonderful Kimberly Jenkins, all about fashion and race. And this interview, I think, with Sarah can be seen as a bit of a companion piece. But you know what? It's also just a lovely, intimate chat between two friends. In some of it, it's just us having a giggle. I hope that by inviting you to join us, we can spark a few more much needed positive conversations on this difficult subject. Let me know what you think. And finally, if you're in London, I'll be reprising the Fashion Roundtable workshop that we talk about. It's happening on September the 24th at the Curtain in Hackney. And there's a link for tickets in my Instagram bio. You know where to find me. I'm at Mrs. Press. But now, come hang out with me and Sarah. Yesterday we did a workshop, which we're going to come on to later. Yes. And it made me desperate to get you on the podcast to talk about fashion and colonialism and luxury. Yeah. But I want to begin by talking about Dior. So their cruise show yes. for 2020 was held at this incredible palace in Morocco on April the 29th. What's its name? It was at the El Badi. They had 800 guests. They had Diana Ross. They had, I don't they know, Jessica did. Alba. It was very flashy. Now, were you there or were you watching it on your phone like me? <laughs> I was watching it on my phone. Uh, initially, I was excited and uh, beautiful, beautiful palace. Um, I know that space very well. I think the showmanship of fashion is something that everybody aspires to. And there's that feeling of the front row and you know who's sitting with who and what have you but as the models started to come out my heart started to sink and yeah I didn't actually comment on it on Instagram at all I just wanted to see how the story unfolded and I don't think people quite understand what the drama is so I was really I was grateful you asked me actually yesterday Mm. about it well the first thing I noticed was that a cat wandered under the runway did you see that yes yeah <laughs> and I was like how delightful a cat watch the catwalk and so it was cute. you know twinkling lights and candlelights it, it was incredibly dramatic held at night yes but that's not what you thought is it I mean let's just talk a little bit about some of the coverage so WWD reported that Dior had collaborated with a host of guest designers from the African continent and beyond in a shared tribute to craftsmanship yes. and they said the clothes were a dialogue with the world today a celebration of globalization and inclusivity just bear with me (laughs) (laughs) i also found this article in euro news which begins the collection marked a pivotal change for the label featuring a new multicultural vision led by creative director maria grazia churi now and then just this bit so then asking why the collection marked such a radical shift for dior they said It's based on a new vision to incorporate the prestige of local craftsmanship into high fashion design. Then they quoted Maria Grazia and she said, Dior is a global brand. As we move into the future, we need to represent many different points of view, not just mine. You're really speaking about the human touch here, like in Couture. This collection is not about an idea of an African look, in inverted commas. It's a celebration of African savoir faire, and it will be a real part of the African economy. Now, sounds pretty good to me, but you're not convinced. It does sound pretty good, and I love Dior. I want to know why now, because um, these stories and this print has been around for a long time. But as we all know, there's this surge and a trend for inclusion and what I'm worried about under the umbrella of sustainability that we're talking about unity and this hand touch as a trend frankly to be blunt Morocco is actually quite significant and I'm of Moroccan heritage I'm Afro-Arab so 
my great grandfather's Moroccan and Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, there's a strong footprint again through the social economical paths of Africans and Europeans. There's a lot of these people in France, you know, um, so I want to know why we are celebrating them now. Morocco is described as the kiss between Europe and Africa. But really So you said that you said that yesterday and I was like, oh Yes. Was it someone from the Dior? From the Dior. Is yeah, it was the director who was asked, you know, why Morocco? Like the show director or something. Yes. Yeah. They were they said why Morocco and and she said it was the kiss between Europe and Africa. Again, looking at this through African eyes, you think the kiss? Africa has given the world African-American heritage, culture, music, dance. You know, Africa has given the fashion industry diamonds. It's given the fashion industry cotton. We have given, you know, Beyonce her dance moves. (laughs) (laughs) We have done a lot for fashion. But I don't like the idea that the tip, the coolest, flattest part of Africa, the touristy area that's just two hours away from Paris being described as a, a homage for a heritage brand that's been there for a very long time, as has Africa, as has the Adinkra print. It just seems that the timing is just a little bit... Mm. I mean, there is this long history of Western and particularly Parisian designers being inspired, in inverted commas, by the kind of exoticism of Morocco. I'm thinking about Saint Laurent and his house there. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Love it. You know, in the 60s, there was all that kind of cultural plundering. I think we could call it now, but it came through a different lens, didn't it? It was sort of like, yeah. if you were the kind of luxe hippie, then you ventured into these unknown yeah, lands. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. such horrible language, isn't no, it? No, no, but there is unknown a way to do whom? it. You, there's a way to do it. I think Tory Birch does it beautifully. Matthew Williamson does it beautifully. Alice Temperley has done it beautifully. There's, okay. There is a way to tell a story through your journey, through your exploration of the world, through your the colour that you see and the culture and all of that that is fine mm. but the adinkra symbols on these african prints i don't know if you were you aware of this yesterday not until you talked to really, through it i myself as an east african had to learn this and so the adinkra cloth that's the part of the heritage and the storytelling of the people of ghana specifically but the whole of the horn of africa the adinkra cloth is the storytelling of its people And these are dresses that are being hand-sewn with love, given from generation to generation. And they've always been there. And it's part of, you know, so... What does it look like? Tell us what it looks like since this is audio. Yeah, so there are lots of little symbols. I mean, I had to... So my daughter's name is Aya. And I found out that that there's actually a little symbol. And her little symbol is a tree because it looks like a little fern tree. And so it's all about the ability to stay put and be deep-rooted no matter what weather no matter how harsh the sun is, how, you know, whatever life beats on you, basically, for you to stay rooted and grounded. And I adored that. And so I and my daughter has that as part of, of her storytelling next time somebody asks her what her name means. So there's lots of them. There's actually hundreds. Basically, that wasn't supposed to be mass produced or it can be mass produced, but by its people. It's like me telling your story without your permission and selling it and producing it maybe probably not in Africa because that's that's another point that nobody wants to talk about and then you know the idea of a catwalk being predominantly black models that's great but 
it's not enough. It's just not enough. We we need people of colour in the boardroom. And had Dior had that in the beginning, they would have done things differently. It seems elementary to say that we shouldn't be telling other people's stories or we should be giving the opportunity for the people to whom the stories belong to to tell them themselves, and yet we just don't do it. And mm. you mentioned the boardroom, and I think when you read Maria Grazia Churi's sentiments here, you understand that it comes from a good place, that mm. she wanted to do something. Yes. I haven't asked her, but I do feel it in her words, that she wanted to do something that was inclusive and she tried to do that. But I think one of the places that she's missed the markers they hired a cultural anthropologist who's no doubt a formidable expert sure. in African textiles and fashion. Her name is Anne Grofilet. Now, some of the criticism of the show focuses on that, that you've got, like, French people hiring French experts on another country, another continent, yes. to try to tell these stories that don't belong to them. So I'm just going to read you a final media perspective from another point of view. This one comes from the Nigerian site Pulse from the writer Nityanu Obiora and she said Maria used a non-African woman and a non-African company to be the mouthpiece for a continent that is so rich in culture and heritage. A culture and heritage that is neither Anne Grosfilet nor Uniwax. This is culture to be privy to. Now Uniwax is a company that's actually based in Ivory Coast and that produced the print, but it belongs to Vlisco, which is based in the Netherlands. And exactly. that's the original wax print yes. fabric company that was um, mired in colonial history, I guess. Exactly. So if, yeah, for those who don't understand the connection, that's why there is pain attached because this print, it should be homegrown. Could you tell us about the history of the wax print and that Dutch connection? This is literally such a tender subject that I think that this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is for its people to tell you through their eyes. Yesterday when I saw you, I for my presentation, I had images and this is so close to my heart that I took down the images because I thought I had no right to imprint my version of the world I see because I'm still... At 22 years in this industry, I'm still questioning the lens through which I see luxury, mm. I see fashion, and I see culture, even though this is what I do every day. I decided that I should take down the images. And so I feel that I will be undoing that now if I told, and that is the point, it's their story to tell. Mm. So I'm your... Uh, I'm sure one of your amazing friends and, and contacts in that industry will tell the story better than me. You know, you see lots of anger in um, social media. You know, everybody comes as a sort of mm -hmm. keyboard warrior, like, how dare they? There's a, but there's pain. It's because people are hurt. That's all. I was very interested in your use of the word tender yesterday, and you just used it again. I think it's a really applicable word, and it means something very, well, actually very strong, even though it means something soft. Yes. Talk to me about your choice of that word. Tender to me means there's healing to be done and there was pain. And that's where we are, I think, in terms of colonialism in fashion and cultural appropriation. And this is as happy as I am when I see another black model on the cover, as happy as I am when I see another collaboration, you know, Rihanna heading LVMH with her new range for... Fenty Maison, it's amazing. And this is the step towards healing. It's a different, we're stepping away from tenderness when we see the likes of Rihanna doing what she's doing. And she's the first one. You know, this is the black woman, again, that's given the fashion industry so much inspiration. It's been, she's been a muse, 
But then, you know, when the collection's finished, lots of brands go to the likes of Kim Kardashian and they want her selling, you know, even though her body is artificially manufactured and her brand is very manufactured, why is that kind of an influencer chosen by these brands? The story goes so well, but then they lose their way because they let algorithms decide for them something that should come from their heart. What do you mean, algorithms? I think that, and I don't blame them, the the market is crowded, everybody wants to stand out, everybody wants to say something. But I think it's a little bit sad when people and brands don't listen to their heart and they do what looks good. And this is the sustainability that I work for. I want to know who will do the right thing if there was no one looking, (laughs) you know? The algorithm conversation and debate to me takes the democracy out of social media because now the smaller brands, the small are getting smaller Mm. and the big are getting bigger. Okay, let me just come back to this idea of luxury and sustainability. What is luxury now for you? You know, the funny thing is that I've been in London all my life and I spent my summer holidays in Sudan and my Christmas holidays in Muscat, in Oman, predominantly. And so luxury to me has always been Africa and the Middle East. Luxury was spending time with my grandfather. Um, My grandfather, a true veteran in sustainability, used to pre-measure, as he's watering his plants, he used to pre-measure the water so he wasn't over-watering his plants. Oh, goodness, because water's always a luxury when you haven't got enough. Exactly. Exactly. Luxury to me was sitting on the rooftops because we used to have these big water containers. And when there was a power cut, you'd lose water as well because the water pump wasn't going to work. So they'd have these big tanks at the top of the house. So I used to sit on the top and watch watch people's body language, you know, when they went in to visit somebody and then they came out and then what they wore when they'd go into the mosque. And the same young man or the same older lady how her body language and her her uniform changed you know and how the relationship between architecture and fashion and rituals you know the taking off your shoes you know that to me the luxury was in the ritual it was in the storytelling and it was in the connection of me saying this fashion this cloth that I put on my skin and this is something we're putting on our skin the largest organ in our body so you know it needs to be important this is the story behind this 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 embroidery comes from this part of my country and this color means this to my people you know this dye comes from this part of the of Sudan because Sudan's got such a strong history with textiles and dye printing. Sarah what do you actually do for a job? I'm a consultant. I specialize in the emerging market. And so I help luxury brands understand the African and Arabian customer. And likewise, I help brands from that market raise their brands to international level so um, they can get their voices heard and their brands into new markets. But you didn't always want to be in fashion. You actually studied architecture. I started off in buying and merchandising. I had the privilege of spearheading the first luxury multi-retailer into the Middle East. After that, I... Which one was it? I worked for Harvey Nichols, actually. And I was in women's wear. I'd just come from the shop floor. I worked in... I was a manager for Ladies Contemporary. And I went on a secondment to head office 
that's another story. So my dad was passionately waiting for me to get back into architecture and I secured work experience for, with Zaha Hadid and he couldn't for the life of him understand what I was doing on the shop floor. I mean, she's the most was the most phenomenal woman architect the world has ever seen. I think. She, yeah, she was amazing. She so didn't do it. I, I spent three months with her, I and I wasn't happy. And she could see that I wasn't happy until one day, she I had a meltdown, and she said, "Let's go for a walk and talk." And we, you know, we were talking again, half in Arabic, half in English. And um, by the end of the chat, she said, to, "I specialize in bridges," and she said to me, "Sarah, let me do you a favor." I'm going to free you from this because you're waiting for permission. And she said, you're not going to do this because I can see you are the bridge. You're not supposed to be building bridges. She used the word concrete. She said, she said you need a concrete heart for this. And she said, you're too soft. You care too much. You care about the people inside. Where did you grow up? Where are your parents from? So my parents are Sudanese. I'm Sudanese. I still feel very Sudanese, even though I'm a, grew up in London. I'm a Londoner. Um, but I lived in Saudi Arabia. I lived in uh, Italy. And my father was an airline manager, and so we we travelled a lot. We you know every half term, every you know we had free tickets, and so that's like not? the golden aim. Exactly <laughs> right, and you know we would travel. And I, oh God, it seems incredibly ungrateful, but I sometimes just wanted to be home. I was actually a shy girl. I'm the only, only girl, four boys after me. And I love books and I love libraries and, you know, I love the river. I've always uh, lived, actually, we, we live as close to the Thames here as my family live in Sudan near the Nile. So again, going back to your question about luxury, this is my luxury. Could you tell me what your parents taught you or what you learned from them? in terms of values? Oh gosh, gratitude. Definitely gratitude. And sharing. I'm one of five. My dad's one of seven. My mum's one of seven. So this uh, idea of it taking a village, it really does. And I think the value that I take from them more than anything is that you can't be alone. We're better together. But through traveling, I would watch, you know, as the aircraft was sort of taxiing back, I would watch how the people working would take their overalls off and they turn around and they'd go do something else. In a wedding that I went to in Morocco, I would watch the rituals of the women and actually how strong and how, what a matriarch society is there. And then I would come back and listen to assemblies here talking about we need to gather water to build wells in Africa. But I thought, That's I saw cool. Africa's, yeah, here in London, I was like, Africa's rich, you know, like, what are, you, what are you talking about? So what are you, you know, and again, I saw a privileged side of Africa, but I never felt sorry for Africa. And I felt rich because I was African. But we have this continuing problematic framing of a continent mm. as something that needs our help. It's so, we still have this colonial discourse in our language in, yeah. in Europe, don't we? It's and very subtle. States. It's subtle. Like you always sit here, London, Paris, Africa. You're like, well, but Paris <laughs> is a city and Africa is a continent. You know, it's, it's, it's really subtle. You know, it's awful. I it's know. like we think we're so modern and global, but we're still locked in. But it's in the language. Yeah. yeah. It's just really tiny things I've like never that. I've heard that London, Paris, Africa. You see it, yeah. And okay, and all that. Like on a about, shopping bag. On a, on on a, a shopping bag, yeah. Exactly. Bag. Or you'd see, and this is going to be another controversial thing, there's a strong petition for a Vogue Africa at the moment. 
And again, that's something that lots of people go, oh, great, that's amazing. And you're looking at me like, what's wrong yeah, with that? No, I'm looking at you like, why? Why wouldn't you have Vogue Nigeria or Vogue? Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. okay, cool, perfect. No, I am. So you get it. Yeah, 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 amazing. So yeah, they should, they should be Vogue Nigeria and Vogue Egypt and Vogue South Africa. Yesterday, we did this lovely workshop for Fashion Roundtable. It was yes. called Democratizing Sustainable Fashion. You talked about your presentation was called The Impact of Colonialism on People of Colour. But one of the things that really struck me was you were talking about how everyone wants to put you in a box when you're signing a form. Yes. Like, what are you? Like, talk to me about that. Well, you see, that's, again, another thing that you only notice when you're a person of colour, you know, and these are forms that you fill in, whether you're at the GP or, you know, you're applying for a job or, or whatever. And, you know, at the top, it's always white. And then Asian, and then it'll be two, three boxes, what kind of Asian. And then the black, you know, it'll be black African, black American. And then there's lots of subcategories for black. And there's part of me that thinks, well, why is there one box for white, but so many different boxes for black? Is this going to affect the menu? Like, is this for the canteen? <laughs> is this feedback? <laughs> you know, like, wh why? But usually it's just for your security badge. And I have the privilege of working in some beautiful buildings, heritage buildings, some I won't mention where, but, you know, I, I filled out a form once where I just put black. And when they printed off my ID, it came back as a mixed race. And my heart sank and I went back to security. I knew it wasn't an accident. And I said, oh, this seems to be, you know, and look, <laughs> can we put this back as black? And they looked at me and they said, but you're mixed race. Oh, God. And I thought, if I say I'm black, mm -hmm. I say I'm black. Coming at this from an American perspective, it's a very different kind of conversation. I mean, in Britain, we sort of talk about BME, don't we? Yes. Which in America, people are like, what is that? What is that? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, the whole conversation is dangerous. <laughs> it is dangerous and it's intricate. And, you know, I don't want to be like the voice of like black anything. Mm. I'm here to talk about my perception and my opinion and I, I don't want to see the world through that lens I don't want to become a cynic yeah you know I I'll tell you one interesting thing that I had to go through I was surprised when they because the black history month thing started at school it was a news for me like all of a sudden they started to do black history month and they were talking about social deprivation again which I completely honor and there are some really painful stories and that everybody should know but there are some stories the, the story of Rosa Parks should be taught on Women's Day as well as Black History Month you're so right you know it's because the strength and the grit of a woman I promise you was a big part of what made her mm. what pulled her out of that chair and helped her get to the front of that bus that's the story that I see you know so there, it's multi-layered. And actually what I did um, when I was 12, when I was told that story of Rosa Parks and I was convinced to show another side. So I can't <laughs> talk about luxury. I called our ambassador to come in and my our ambassador was my show and tell. So they said, everybody. Your ambassador what? Who? No, at the time I called the Sudanese ambassador to come to and school. tell them. Yes. Awesome. So he came with like you know, the flags and the whole kit. Yeah. And I called Ambassador and I said, please, will you come and show a different black? Because they're telling lots of sad stories yeah. in this building. And I want to see black celebrated. I wanted yeah. 
people I mean, you to said, black power. You said that yesterday as well in terms of the way that culture likes to put people in boxes, but also the way that the story is so often skewed of... I guess, oppression. Of course there are stories of oppression, so they oh, need completely. to be told. But then you said something like, I'm a middle-class person. Why do I have to be always considered to be, I must be disadvantaged if yes. I must be the other? And it's the way that we otherize, isn't it? I actually, yes. I started my presentation not knowing what you were going to talk about with a discussion on the other, but I was looking at mankind. I hate the word man, let's say womankind. No, <laughs> yeah. let's say humankind. <laughs> humankind. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that in. Um, see, language. Yes. We get familiar with language. Mankind. Yes. Anyway, but the idea that humans think so little of the other and my the other was nature, was everything else that wasn't human. Ah. And this idea that we have, I mean, it's rooted in religion, but the idea that humans have dominion over everything else and that we disavow the complexity and importance of all of the other being nature, being the oceans, being animals, being mm. everything that we're buggering up with global warming. Yeah. But... This idea of the other is just so hard to grapple with, isn't it? And I think what we do is we simplify it, don't we? Because it's easier. Yeah, I'm all for simplifying and just telling... No, but that's the bad if we simplify it. You know, this sort of painting of... Well, yeah, yes and no. I feel simplifying it as in stripping it down to its core mm. would be really helpful. And also this other thing like let's unother you know because yeah. otherwise you have this sort of balloon effect you know you know if you like squeeze a balloon on one side the other side it becomes like bigger can i tell you something really horrible tell when me. you said that i thought about i have a friend who had liposuction and okay. she said that's what happens because it causes all this <laughs> oh, no. it causes all this scar tissue and then when yeah. your fat bits come back they squidge up to another place where they wouldn't normally have been there you go that's proof <laughs> Apologies for that image, but it's interesting. There you go. That proved my point. I will comment now because now I feel right. No, but, you know, there's that feeling of like, you know, I've eaten like kale and I've reduced my carbon footprint. So I'm allowed to, you know, say, hey, I'm more righteous or I'm allowed to sort of name and shame, you know, or, you know, I have studied this part of the world and I feel educated and empowered. So when I stand up and I have passion then don't tell me I'm angry you know that's one thing that I'm always aware going back to fashion roundtable I don't want to come across as the angry black woman because I'm passionate about what I do and I'm protective over Africa and I know we have pain and I know we have hardship as we have here in the west you know and I sort of you know have one leg here one leg there and you know I feel a bit of both but why do I have to choose just like why do I need to choose which box to tick I want to tick three boxes and on a Monday I feel very African and on a Thursday you know I'm so proud to be British and serve my country and this is my country but Africa is my continent. Mm. Talk us through part of the presentation that I loved where you use the words, do you see me? Yes. Actually, I'm not going to take full credit for that. I listened to Oprah as I listened to Oprah so much. Because Oprah's the best podcast. She's the best. I will just admit <laughs> that Oprah's podcast is better than this one. Come this, on. No. It's awesome. It, it, come on. She's the queen. No, you guys are. It's just, I think uh, podcasts are the way forward because you... <laughs> Someone's voice is their essence, and sometimes when you just hear, you feel someone's spirit, whether their intention is there or not. So you and Oprah, <laughs> yeah, you and Oprah. So, so yeah, she so says that. Oprah, Oprah said that at the core of every human being, they want to feel validated. They want to say, "Do you see me? Do you hear me? Do you feel me?" 
And I think that is the conversation to be had now about inclusion, about inclusivity. It's not a trend. <laughs> it shouldn't come through. I think, you know, with fashion being the way it is, everything is at risk of it. You know, feeling like it's going to have, it's going to have its moment, and then it's going to plateau, and then it's going to dip. And I think in the core of people who are, putting so much emphasis of this having a moment. This is not a Wakanda moment. Please don't let this just be, you know, something that's just going to plateau and then the numbers are going to dip. And then you're going back to algorithms and trends and forecasts and, you know, is it going to dip? Because if it dips, my heart will dip with it. Because for that moment, we were recognised. Mm. We made the front cover of Vogue. We have women of colour being celebrated for Oscars. But then at the same time, you know, we have more black scientists than we have NBA players and football players. We need to change that narrative. Mm. You know, we need to have a truly inclusive conversation. We need to talk about who's in the boardroom. Well, we, I, was about, yeah, I was just about to say exactly that. For yeah. me raising that before, it's about structural change and about progress rather than a trend. And we talk about the same thing when we talk about sustainability yes but yeah it's all very well to have the pin up but who is making the decisions yeah and I don't want to be the only person in the boardroom I, and I know early in my career it was a shock to see you know me there and sometimes I was mistaken for the person who's going to make notes in the corner oh God. I mean that's womankind's <laughs> story isn't it yeah exactly that would have happened notes here, yeah love? Thank exactly you. <laughs> exactly um do you see that you know when we go into production houses milliners uh, um, millinery is such a beautiful craft that we associate with ascot and we associate with you know it's a lifestyle craft quite a middle class craft if I may say so to master and that's amazing but then all the horrible things that, that happened five years ago in Bangladesh the image we have of that why does that have a different image in our head why is that artisan hand making that hat there feel different to somebody who's making something here in Hampton Court or in Reading or in Isha. Again, that's why I didn't want to use any images yesterday. It was a bit awkward because your images were amazing. And I was like, oh God, I, I just whacked up the Chanel show. I was talking about her story. Yes. So my argument was why is it that we always focus? on the woman wearing the clothes, whether it's the woman mm. on the runway or the mm. woman in the magazine or mm. the woman buying the clothes. Mm. That's her mm. story. And yeah. I showed a picture from the Chanel Spring 15 runway, which it's Cara Delevingne with a megaphone. I'm sure you'll remember it was a kind of based on the women's movement yes. theme for this show. But, you know, this is very expensive tweed Chanel. Exactly. And I love the energy of talking about marching and the women's movement, of course, but when we commodify that and make that into a way to sell fashion and then we forget that we rarely tell the story of the women who make our clothes then yes. I think we've got a slight problem when the placard on the runway says her story exactly <laughs> you mentioned before that you'd worked for Harvey Nichols whereabouts Saudi Arabia paint me a picture of what it was like doing that job and who were you dealing with the interesting thing about that was like I, I just joined head office and I was the only person who'd worked on the shop floor 
spoke Arabic, was a woman. And so I went from having a very humble position to all of a sudden dealing with the buying directors of the franchise on the other side. It was difficult. I know Saudi Arabia has come a long way, but to go to a meeting and to sit in the family area and have my minder come and tell me how the meeting is going on the other side where they're sitting with a nice, you know, silverware on the other side. This is the truth of Saudi Arabia that nobody wants to talk about. I mean, they're doing phenomenally well, you know, only now though that women are driving, you know. Only now getting the vote. Only now getting to vote. Um, But this is at the same time, this is a liberated woman. Mm -hmm. You know, the Sharia law, the Islamic law protects the right of the woman more than the rest of the world knows. But there is the political perception of this woman and then her civil rights. And so, again, it's politics overwriting culture, you know. So the Saudi Arabian woman is an incredibly strong, empowered woman, but she doesn't have her freedom. You finished yesterday with an awesome sentence, um, which was, you've got your seat at the table now. Yes, you've got your seat on the table. It's time to shuffle up. (laughs) So good. (laughs) And make space. Because, you know, there's all these uh, things about having a bigger table. But a big table, we need an intimate dinner. We need the cosy dinner. We need to cuddle up and shuffle up and maybe have the same table. Don't change the table. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Keep the table because that's the table we were given but let's make the best of it and make the best of the meal and share, share with intention, you know, not do inclusivity because it's going to sell more mm-hmm. covers or more jackets. You know, um, yesterday I also talked about the cultural appropriation between urban wear and black culture. Oh, goodness, and I had never known. And you said, really? who knows this story? And most people put their hands up, but I had never thought of it. Can you share it with us? Yeah, so the very loose silhouette, the baggy silhouettes that you see in puffer jackets and hoodies and, and so forth, back to the days of, of slavery. So the, the men that worked on the cotton fields and the women that worked as maids, they were given a standard uniform. You know, there was no small, medium, large, extra large. And so when they were moved from one location to the other and they were and their wrists and ankles were in chains, you know, should you needed to stop and pull your trousers up, your hands weren't free because you were chained, right? So this, you know, the jeans down low that you see that's so cool in a in a music video is actually really serious you know so and now now on the runway becoming luxury is luxury but let me ask you something with all honesty the same 600 1000 3000 pound 10,000 pound jacket that you want to sell to a black man that's going to look great editorially What's going to happen when this very man comes to buy his jacket in the shop? Will the security cameras zoom in or not? Will he see his fellow man standing, guarding the boutique? Or will he see his fellow man as the manager of the boutique? These are the honest conversations that nobody wants to have. Mm. You know, there's no, there's no recruitment agency of Bond Street that says all people of colour need apply here for security jobs down this <laughs> oh, road. But that's what happens. And mm. that's what I see. Mm. And so that's what I was asking yesterday is, do you see? Yeah. Do you see the problem? If you're listening to this and you work in retail, obviously with your background being in retail in that kind of luxury department store end of town, what can retailers do to change this conversation and be way more inclusive? I think retailers need to listen 
listen to their customer. Um, it's in the detail. You know, I want to ask you, are, are you aware that there is more than one Mother's Day? So there is an opportunity to merchandise and to connect. And again, it goes back to, do you see me? Do I matter? Mm. So, you know, for the Arabic Mother's Day, there is nothing. There's no discounts or promotions or no spa, yeah, you know, wow. um, just little, little tiny things that you can do to connect to the customer for them to feel validated and a member of your tribe. Um, yesterday, I think he was your friend, the one who's the shoe designer. Sean. He mentioned how annoying it is when there's kind of like African pop-ups. And he's like, why do they yeah. have to be pop-ups? Why can't it be a space for us all yes. the time? Yes. And then again, it goes back to the dual conversation. It's like there's some people who say, this is great. We're recognized. You know, they can see us. So it's like, you know, the whole popping up thing, you know, you feel like a jack in the box, like you're the, you know, you're having your moment. And then get back in. But then, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But then there's the get back in. And that's where the problem is. It's mm. like the popping up is great, but you pop down. And then I guess it's just like, think about your customers because your customers is everybody presumably if you're a big department store you yeah. you want to make sure that you are welcoming everyone in your doors not according to some weird hierarchy sure and i think it's based on the quality of the questions asked at board level again you know is the question how can we connect with the emerging market you know we need open-ended questions you know where are arabs shopping you know do we help you know just empathetic questions mm. But not, don't ask me, how do we get more Nigerians through the door? <laughs> like my, my favorite thing is like, do you want the Nigerians or do you want Nigerians' money? Because that's two conversations. I can help you with both. There's no problem. And actually, it's quicker for me. I'll get paid more and quicker as a consultant if I just show you how to find them and, and done. But here is an opportunity. I'm a woman of color. Help me help you help them. <laughs> not just for a season. I see them. So why is an Arabic woman wearing hijab or niqab walking into HSBC Bank, for example, in Mayfair, that's okay. But a young black man with a designer bandana, let's give him a designer bandana, not even a non-designer one. <laughs> why does he have problems walking into the same building? It's the same covering of the face, but it just looks so different. We can't solve generations of global discord and lack of inclusivity even in this even in this town, can we? Yeah. Not you and I at this table. Oh, yeah. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? It'd be nice. But what do you think we could do to address just one small part of that, which is inclusivity in fashion? I think we should just tell the whole truth, tell the whole story. Fashion's not going to save the world, but it's a huge employer. You know, uh, fashion to me is no longer about the it item of the season. It To me, it's armor. It's the confidence that a blazer will give me walking into a meeting. But also it's about my traditional cloth that I will wear with pride and say, this is who I am. And this fabric means this to me. And again, it's something that I've been putting on my skin. So I better question it. So I think our relationship with our clothes, mirrors, how we want the world to see us and the imprint we want to leave behind as a legacy and goes back to, do you see me? Do I matter? And, do, you know, it's not about that jacket that, did you see me on my Instagram? 
<laughs> that's not what you meant. Why that's did you not see what I me? Meant. Did you see me do okay? <laughs> and yeah, I meant, do you see me as somebody who is doing my best to turn up? That's all we're all doing in our core, whether we're fighting for sustainability or fighting for fashion. And I, I don't want it even to be a fight. Mm. I want it just to be a celebration of just saying, I'm doing the best we can. And coming back to a couple of things you said before, just to finish, is that word tenderness, which I think of in terms of being gentle with one another, mm. um, that it is a difficult conversation to have and we will make missteps while we have it. Yeah, And to be... I guess just empathetic when people are trying to address this stuff and learn and grow. Yeah, and, and it's education as well. And I think when you, I mean, yesterday I closed with the words of Dr. Maya Angelou. I was about to say, and please, <laughs> invoked Oprah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we got them all now, come on. Yeah, exactly. Actually, my grandfather used to translate Dr. Angelo's poems. Um, really? Yeah, he did in Arabic. So I grew up um, reading all her work. So yeah, it's Dr. Angelo told us that uh, when we know better, she said, do the best you can. And when you know better do better and I think I hope Dior knows better now and I hope that we keep having this conversation and you know fashion is frivolous and as fun as exciting and you know it is a show and it's gorgeous there's a deeper level and an opportunity to bind ourselves as one it's a tribal instinct isn't it for us to come together and so these social media groups and you know all these kids who are sharing the same feed and you know we look for connections so let's just not deny ourselves the opportunity to hear one another by trying too hard to be right and I hope I don't come across as a as an angry black woman in my protection for my culture what I'm trying to say is that this is tender because it's love and that's what I I strive to do no I love you. You're I love awesome. you. Wow. <laughs> Thank Actually, you. Speaking of love, let what? me tell you something. Yeah, when we did the women's march together, there was that moment where we had to all hold hands, right? Yes. Do you remember that then? Yes. And it was so cool. And I forgot to let go of your hand. Oh, good. <laughs> I don't remember I the forgetting bit. I remember the holding hands bit. Yeah, no, but Did I we just walk realize. then to tea holding and hands. Like, carried oh, on, carried on holding Claire Press's hand. And then when I got home, I went, oh, my God. <laughs> I held on to her hand. That is actually beautiful. But, and that's love. And the fact that I just obviously thought that was totally normal. <laughs> because I can't remember you. I can't remember trying that to was, shake you off. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you are love. Ah, thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. This was so this much was fun. fun. I know. Okay, now I'm warmed up now. Yeah, we're done now. Though. Yeah, cool. <laughs> it's finished. I'm ready now. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. 
She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you